Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Hi, welcome back. It's my pleasure today to talk to Adam Michelle. He's a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, where he works on tax policy and the federal budget. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me on. So before we get started, I want to ask you the question that I ask all my guests, which is, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, And obviously, could go in any number of directions. So I'm not going to claim that this is the the most important thing, but within the sphere of things that I uh, tend to think about, I think that the thing that that sort of young people in general miss is that when we're having policy discussions and we and the, the things that sort of get the most attention. Uh, look at education, look at healthcare. Uh, often these things are pointed to and said, look, these are places where we need more government intervention. The, the market has failed. It's not doing, not providing what is needed at a price that is convenient for people. Um, it, it's often missed that these are also the areas where the government is most involved in uh, in the economy. Look at education. The the government pours gobs of money into education up and down from uh, K, K through 12 up into to higher education. And same thing in healthcare. I mean, the, this is part of the economy where the government is most probably most involved, both through regulation and in spending at the federal level and the state level and at the international level. Other countries are even more involved. And so I think often are the first reaction to in any analysis, um, looking at sort of economic reforms is there's a problem out there. It must be a market problem, but that almost always gets the analysis wrong. Um, almost always it's highly distorted by a government action that's already going on and getting that baseline right is, is really important, especially on a lot of the current topics that, that people are talking about today. So it's really important to sort of, to parse out what is true market failure, what is true, what is actually a government failure, and and how do we sort of compare uh, apples to apples rather than um, than sort of misdiagnosing the problem, and uh, and then I think sort of everything goes wrong from there there on out. That's a really good point. I actually haven't. I don't know how. I guess I'm young. I haven't really learned yet. I don't know too much about tackling issues or talking policy, even though I do it a good amount. But in talking with my friends, it often is, that's always the first response. Oh, what's wrong with the market? What's wrong with like schools, like private schools, whatever, like they're doing it wrong. But public school, we all go to public school, all my friends and I, and I'm like, 
Now, the more that I'm thinking about it, that is, your first question should be, how is the government already involved and already changing the natural state of things? That's a good point. That's a, I definitely need to keep that in mind more often. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and okay, today we're going to be talking about taxes because it's tax season and we all, well, I don't really pay taxes, but everyone else pays taxes and I will be paying taxes. So listen up, everybody. It's important. Um, so as individuals, we pay state, local, and federal taxes, but I mostly want to talk about the federal tax system because it's the biggest one and it affects everyone regardless of what state you're in. So it is very applicable to everyone instead of being like, how are the taxes in Arlington, Virginia? You know. Um, so my first question is, what are the main federal taxes that people pay, that individuals pay, and what are the differences between them? Yeah, so I think it's great to focus on the federal tax code, but just as you pointed out, we do pay taxes in lots of different places depending on where you live. And so it's important to remember that anything we talk about at the federal level has something else layered on top of it. So if we say the federal income tax, top income tax rate is 37%, uh, there's an additional couple percentage points layered on top of that at the, at the state level or maybe at the local level in some cases. Uh, and so often when we sort of segment the policy discussion, it's, it's important to remember that, that we're still only talk, talking about a piece of what the government is doing. But the federal piece is, is in this case, the largest and the one that impacts everyone. So I think it's a, it's a great place to start. Um, so the federal, uh, federal taxes sort of fall into four buckets, I guess I'd, I'd put them in. Um, one is individual income taxes. Uh, the second is payroll taxes. Uh, the third is corporate income taxes. So what large businesses pay. And then there's sort of all the other ones, tax, other smaller taxes, fees, those types of things that make up the rest of the revenue. So individual income taxes make up just shy of about half of the revenue the federal government brings in. Uh, and these, this is money, you can think of it as like what the taxes that you pay on the wages that you earn uh, when you uh, when whoever employs you sends you that, that check. Um, and then the second bucket is payroll taxes, which are similar to in individual income taxes, but, but slightly different in that um, they are often thought of as going to fund uh, specific programs like Social Security, like Medicare. And these uh, payroll taxes are paid by both uh, your employer and the employee. So they're sort of split down the middle um, uh, for who's legally required to pay the taxes. But that's sort of a misleading way to think about it because because of the way that the market works, the employer passes their share, the full cost of that tax, onto the employee. So really, the payroll tax is very similar to the income tax in all sort of uh, in, in most ways. And then the, the sort of third bucket, um, corporate income taxes, is a little over five percent of federal revenue, uh, and it and those are taxes that are paid that larger corporations pay on their income. And then there's a as I said, a smaller bucket of a bunch of other things. Those are the sort of main pieces. 
Um, so according to kind of focusing on individual income tax first, um, according to Tax Policy Center, about 50% of all of federal revenue comes from this. And yeah. so biggest tax. But I also see that about 44% of Americans don't pay federal individual income taxes, which is done by design, by excluding households through different things like exemptions, a standard deduction and things like that, tax credits. Can you explain to us what those are and like what they do? Yeah, that's a good question. So there, there's often confusion on this point because I don't, I don't know if you remember, um, but a while, when Mitt Romney was running for president, he had this sort of famous quip that um, only 47% uh, of people pay taxes. And he, he was referring to, to this the income tax piece. Um, that, that you're referring to. And in that narrow sense, um, it, he's right. Because of the way the tax is structured, it's, um, it's intended to just hit um, people with income over a certain threshold. And so the, the, the biggest um, sort of way that people don't end up paying taxes um, under the individual income tax is a standard deduction, which is essentially just like you can think of it as a 0% uh, tax bracket. Um, so, for individual, for an individual, the first twelve thousand dollars that you earn is is essentially tax free. Uh, and then for lower income people, there's all sorts of other uh, offsetting tax credits on top of that. The biggest one is called the Earned Income Tax Credit, and this is a, a sort of wage subsidy program. So it creates uh, and sort of it, it supplements your market wages with a tax credit and then phases out as you earn more money. Um, and because it's what we call what's called a refundable tax credit, it can actually make you can actually pay what's in effect a negative um, uh, income tax rate. So the government's actually writing you checks beyond any income tax liability that you um, otherwise would have. So it gets complicated, but because of all of these different pieces, another big one is a child tax credit. Um, uh, some people can end up getting more money back through the individual income tax system than they than they pay. And that I don't I don't even how does that how does that even work? Because you're paying. How do you get back more than you give? It just makes taxes seem more confusing than they were before. I don't know. Yeah. yeah well, it well, it's blending what. How it's, it's blending the tax system with the the out, the traditional sort of outlay system, where you're it's blending what the system where people pay money and the system where the government is paying people, and I think that's part part of the confusion. It's the the line there becomes really blurry when um, when the government is cutting people checks through a through the tax system, which is often thought of as a system where people are are sending their money to the government, but. Because we were just talking about the individual income tax piece, it, it's maybe helpful to then broaden the conversation to include payroll taxes. And often systems like the earned income, the earned income tax credit, which is a sort of negative income tax for some people, is, is thought of as offsetting the payroll tax, which doesn't have that standard deduction, the thing that exempts some income from taxes. So it's thought of as a way to sort of blunt the impact of, of payroll taxes, which tax that first dollar that's earned um, and could otherwise 
reduce the, in- the, the sort of incentive to work when the government is is taking uh, some some share of of that that first dollar you earned or the second or the third for that matter. Okay, I see how broadening kind of the range of what you're looking at makes it make a bit more sense. You're not if it's offsetting payroll tax, then it's not really okay. No, I get it. Um, so that kind of brings me to tax expenditures, which I don't know if they're related. Um, which this seems so contradictory. A tax expenditure is it a tax? Is it spending? Can you give us some examples of tax expenditures and also explain why? I see all the time that they're called social engineering. Why? Why is it called that? <laughs> yeah, so it's a it's a tax expenditure, and so it's like uh, thinking a tax expenditure is like uh, is both like spending, where the government is, is spending through the tax code, uh, but can also be uh, sensible ways that the government is lowering tax burdens for a, a specific reason, uh, and so it a tax expenditure is is sort of can be lots of different things. And it depends on how it's specifically defined. So trying not to get too, too technical and in the weeds, um, uh, it will start with where we were, where we already were. Uh, the, the earned income tax credit, the EITC, the child tax credit, which is a tax credit that's, um, that most families um, that have kids receive. These are examples of tax expenditures. They're sort of specific um, pieces of the tax code that have been written to lower the tax, the amount of tax that any given specific person or family pays. Uh, there's, and, but these are sort of broad examples of tax expenditures. There's also tax expenditures that are incredibly narrow, um, where the, um, in the corporate income tax code, for example, the federal government might say, we want to incentivize uh, or low, we want to subsidize, lower the, the amount of tax uh, this specific corporation is going to pay on this specific activity. There's an example um, of, of special rules that have been written for uh, racehorses or for NASCAR tracks or for special oil pipelines in Alaska that are put into service after a specific day, like making all the rules so narrow, it only applies to one specific type of project, one specific project. Um, and so these are sort of examples of, the, of tax benefits being either narrowly targeted or more broadly available. Um, so that's sort of the, the broad lay of the land. The problem with lumping all of these things together is that some things do look very much like spending in the tax code. Um, the, a, uh, the, the earned income tax credit that is a, an, can uh, be a negative um, income tax uh, so that someone's actually getting a check from the government, that looks almost identical to spending, where some often um, there's a lower tax rate on um, on on capital gains and dividends income, which is the sort of investment income that comes from, say, investing in the stock market, uh, that the lower rate on that income is also called a tax expenditure, uh, but is very different than than 
than a direct tax credit because that lowering of the rate is actually reducing an economic distortion that the tax code otherwise would be creating. Um, so I, 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 I'm probably, I'm, I'll start talking in circles if I keep going. So I'll stop there and have you ask any clarifying or follow-up questions. Well, you explained this very well. Um, you've done a lot of work on this stuff and you've made the case for why many of them should be eliminated. Can you explain? I mean, you touched on this a bit, but can you explain your position on that and why you think lots of them should be eliminated? Yeah, well, I think I'll take an example of, um, say, the research and development tax credit um, that's available for businesses. This is a generally we think of um, it's not necessarily a lot of people don't think that incentivizing research and development is, is a terrible thing. But the but it's the tax code is has this preference for this certain type of business activity uh, and. What happens is when you put in these special carve-outs and rules and credits for different types of activity, it does sort of two things. One, it makes the tax system more complicated, which makes it that much harder for everyone to understand what it's doing. But it also means that the overall tax rate has to be higher than it otherwise would be if we're trying to raise a certain amount of a certain given amount of revenue. And so I would much rather get rid of the um, research and development tax credit and use that money to... Uh, to lower the the rate for for all businesses, um, rather than preferencing a specific definition of, of of research and development as defined by bureaucrats in in Washington, um, there's all sorts of similar preferences on the individual income tax side. Um, one is the state and local tax deduction is a special deduction that um, some people get to take for their for their taxes paid at the state and local level. Uh, but this is in, unintentionally or maybe intentionally subsidizes uh, people who live in higher tax states over people who live in lower tax states and can actually distort tax policy at the local level. So I would much rather, I don't want to raise everyone's taxes, but I do want to get rid of that deduction uh, and use that money to lower tax rates for everyone so that we're not providing special preferences to, um, to people depending on sort of where they live or what type of business they're in. It also just seems like it makes it way more complicated because it first, then it makes it more complicated for me to understand. But also, if you're going to be spending, spend. Don't take money and then give it back. And then what I, it's just so complicated when there seems to be, and then I would imagine that it's harder than to get a full grasp of what a certain cut or like what a certain expenditure does in comparison to a straight out spending program for a certain thing. So I don't know. It just seems like you're exactly right. It blurs the line between what is spending and what is what is a tax cut. Um, Tax credits are sort of the are what are are spending that that Republicans like often um, because you can take um, say I want to um, to incentivize research and development. I could either have the government write checks to companies to go do research and development, or I could design a tax credit um, that lowers the tax liability of companies that do that same research and development. Uh, and maybe one one is called spending, and one is called a tax cut. 
uh, but they're really doing very similar things and could be designed to be doing identical things. Uh, and so the you're, you're right, it, it confuses the, the, the it confuses the conversation and and makes tax paying more complicated, which ultimately feeds a whole industry of lawyers and accountants that both lobby for more of these things because it keeps them employed. Um, often lobbies to make them more complicated and harder to understand, uh, but also just makes the, the business of tax paying more um, more complicated. And and I think that that's really a shame. There's there's things that sound really good in the tax code, like uh, like a tax credit for low income housing, but when you actually dig into it, the tax credit mostly goes to subsidize um, large developers um, who would have built that housing anyway and subsidizes a huge a large cottage industry of of lawyers and accountants that that do all the documentation and figure out how to make how to actually extract this tax code from this this tax credit from the tax code and uh, and then meet all the compliance standards that then have to be met for to sort of validate that you actually can get this thing and so it's it's really ultimately counterproductive and we would all be better off if we just removed most of these things and, and lowered rates for everyone. So the next biggest federal tax, the payroll tax, part of when I think about this, I think a lot about the fact that it's for a specific program. It's for retirement benefits for current retirees and you're putting money forward for your future. But like, the money is also being spent now. Um, but when I think about it, I think about how programs like Social Security, right now Social Security is not on a pay-as-you-go. It's kind of just growing. But also how you don't necessarily know, like, is the money that you're paying in your payroll tax going straight to Social Security? Or is it just going to the government and they're putting some money towards Social Security? But your money could actually be going towards like roads or something. Yeah. So the, the the idea that the payroll tax is going to fund these programs, I think, is is ultimately more confusing than than it's worth, and that's for a couple different reasons. I mean, the the payroll tax is does go to fund social security. The portion that goes to social security goes to social security, and the portion that goes to um, to Medicare. Uh, does does go to to fund those things, but the problem is money is fungible at the end of the day, and and so the government can sort of move things from one account to the other. Uh, but really, what's happening is that the taxes that we pay for for Social Security and Medicare through the payroll tax don't come close to funding the benefits that are promised um, when we retire and draw and and draw on those programs that they're supposed to be funding, and so. The, the real problem is that people think that they paid into these programs and that they're entitled to them. That we get this word entitlement um, for that these programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid are, are called. Um, people feel entitled to them because they paid into them. But most people don't understand that what they paid in to into these programs doesn't come close to covering the, the cost uh, that when you actually retire. For example, um, some like retirees, lower income retirees uh, that, that retired in, last year in 2020, um, if you 
earned throughout your life uh, about $23,000 on average, you, um, you paid in uh, about $171,000, but got, are going to get out $422,000 in sort of cumulative benefits. And the, the, the difference shrinks as you get, as you get wealthier, but you're still uh, receiving more benefits than, than you paid in. And it's that gap that is, is ultimately a, a problem. Uh, And so the, the, the flip side of this is the, the government isn't investing this money. You said it's sort of a pay-as-you-go system right now. The, basically, the money that's coming in is funding current retirees. Uh, but if we were to move to a system where instead of sending all that money to the federal government, instead, if I put it into an account like a 401k account, which is a type of retirement account that is invested in, um, in, in assets that earn, make, make, an earning, make earnings over time, whether they be the stock market or something else, uh, the, I would, most people would be significantly better off to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars over their lifetime if they were allowed to invest that money in the market rather than sending it to the government in the form of taxes and then receiving benefits when, when they retired. And so I think for, for both, both sides, the payroll tax system um, doesn't really serve us all, all that well. Sounds like a lot of tricky business, (laughs) such as this next thing that I'm thinking about, which is how, what, like, what is the difference really? So the payroll tax is on wages and both employers and employees pay. Um, But the income tax is just employees on their income. But it seems like this distinction between income and wages, there's not, it's kind of unclear because both of these taxes are being paid from the same source of revenue for the majority of people. So how, how does that work? Are people just paying taxes twice on the same money? Uh, so you're, you're right that, it's, that the, the bases are, are similar for most people. The payroll tax does have a cap or above a certain income threshold. Um, you no longer pay payroll taxes, where income taxes um, are, are so we haven't talked about this yet, but we have a progressive income tax system. So uh, I pay a 10% rate on the first amount of money I earn. And then beyond that, the next dollar of income I earn above that threshold is taxed at a higher rate. Um, and then it sort of cascades up from there. Uh, and so the, the but, but you're right, the systems are sort of at, at their core taxing the same sort of base um, pay with some some more complications about sort of other deductions for uh, like employer provided health care and, so, and some other things but 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 you're right we're basically um, basically taxing a, a similar money I've heard people say that um, the person who sends the check to the IRS doesn't really shoulder the economic burden of the tax in terms of the payroll tax um, with the way that half the tax is paid by the employer. But I've heard a lot of economists say that even the employer's share of the payroll tax is actually shouldered by the employee. Can you explain how that works and why that is? Yeah, so this is true for more than just the payroll tax. Uh, But if the... 
the employer, your employer is going to pay you um, whatever they think your 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 worth, the amount of uh, the amount of sort of productivity that you bring to the table, the amount of whatever products that you're making. Um, the, the that the employer values that at some fixed amount, uh, and that's how much the, the your employer is ultimately going to going to want to to pay you from their side, and it. That payment can come in any number of ways. It can come uh, as uh, it can come as writing you uh, a check for uh, just cash. Uh, it could come in other benefits such as uh, increased paid time off, um, or it could come in the form of a healthcare benefit or a retirement benefit. Um, but that whole compensation package isn't going to change. And so we should think of any taxes the government charges. Um, the employer as as sort of they have to fit into that total compensation package. So if the government says, um, I'm going to charge you 6.2% tax on um, on that on the employee's wages, uh, the the that's just another cost to the employer of employing you. So that's just going to come out of your share ultimately at the end of the day. And so that's what economists mean by the cost is passed on to employers. If the government raises that tax by a dollar, it's just going to look, they're just, the employer is just going to end up lowering your pay by a dollar to, to cover the difference because that tax didn't make you any more productive or any more valuable to the company. Um, so it ultimately uh, has to come out of, of your, of, of your share. Um, but something similar happens in front of the corporate income tax, a corporation is just sort of a legal fiction. It's just an entity that a legal entity that's been set up, and the government charges the corporate income tax to the corporations on their profits. But ultimately, it's people that have to pay the tax somewhere. So that that corporation passes the cost of that tax onto either workers in the form of lower wages, uh, to consumers, the people that buy the things from the business in the form of higher prices, or to investors, the people that lend the business money so that they can. Um, so that they can grow and expand, uh, they pa- can pass the tax on in the form of lower investment returns. Um, and here again, we actually see when you look at the sort of empirical research that, that, that workers are the ones that ultimately end up bearing the true cost of the corporate income tax primarily um, through lower wages because for various reasons, but, um, but that the tax cost is ultimately passed back to a person. Um, and, and that's a really important principle, especially when we're thinking about business taxes. It really makes sense once it's explained, but it's so counterintuitive. It's, I don't know, it reminds me of like requiring paid leave because the business, the company has to take that into account when you're hired. And that that is considered a benefit and that they have to pay for that cost of that. And so if it's required, I don't know, you know. It, yeah, it's, it, uh, there's, and, uh, to make it sort of a, a tax conversation, the, there's a specific exclusion in the income tax where you actually don't pay um, income tax on the value of employer-provided health insurance. So if your employer pays you in the form of more generous health care coverage or healthcare benefits, um, that isn't that that form of comp- compensation isn't subject to the income tax. So it actually 
incentivizes employers to pay their employees in the form of healthcare um, instead of in the form of of actual of a physical check of writing you uh, a pay a check a payroll cutting you a payroll check every every couple of weeks or every month, uh, and so this is just one of the many distortions in the healthcare industry where um, there's sort of a government subsidy, implicit subsidy for more spending on healthcare rather than spending on everything else that you would spend your paycheck on, uh, and and so one of the many interesting ways where a tax policy isn't neutral, isn't treating sort of all things similarly, but is instead preferencing one thing over another. That's so interesting. I had no idea that, I mean, I guess if I was older and had a job that was paying me in like healthcare and stuff and giving me healthcare benefits, I might know about that, but that's, I don't know. That's just, Imagine if you want to go buy a smoothie, but no, you're not you're not given the money to buy an extra smoothie because you get a healthcare benefit, but you might not need it. I don't know. <laughs> it, 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 you're right. It, it it makes it makes some people better off and other people worth worse off. Many people would much rather just give me give me a paycheck and I'll choose what to spend the money on. Um, but as soon as in this case, the government's preferencing payment as a as a, as health through healthcare. But as you referenced, whether it be paid family and medical leave or if the government mandates certain amount of of paid time off or something else, that it's the the bundle of of sort of employment compensation starts looking more and more fixed. Uh, and for some people, that might be great because that's the bundle of compensation I want. But for someone that um, lives their life a little bit differently or has different needs, um, they might want to be compensated in, with some other bundle of goods or just with cash. And those people are, are ultimately made worse off. I want to ask you about the progressivity of the federal tax system. So many proponents of the wealth tax believe that the rich don't pay enough taxes or don't pay their fair share. But Let's not get into the issue of fair share and stuff because that's very subjective and just not has nothing to do with this really. Um, so we can look at the fact about the federal tax code and we can learn a few things about it that can guide our understanding to the matter and kind of the way that it works. I mean, you wrote a recent article that kind of looks at that. Um, one way we can look at it is to look at the share of income made by high-income Americans and compare it to the share of income tax that they pay. Can you tell us about what the data shows? Yeah. So the when we're talking about the income tax piece, uh, the um, the wealthiest Americans pay the lion's share of of the income tax. The top ten percent of earners make about. 40, uh, 47, 48% of the, of the income tax, and they pay 70% of, of all income taxes. I'm sorry, they make about 47% of income and pay 70% of the income taxes. So they're paying significantly more taxes in relation to the share of the, of the income they, they earn. Um, and this gets sort of more lopsided the, the wealthier you get. 
Um, but then people will say, well, what about the um, the payroll tax? This is the payroll tax is not nearly as progressive. And and you're correct. But if we as we sort of add more things into the conversation, we should also be we should be looking at sort of the tax side and the the benefit side. And again, when we look at the sort of progressivity progressivity of the fiscal system, the full U.S. federal fiscal system of taxes and transfers. Um, again, we see that the system has become more progressive over time, and the highest income Americans um, tend to to cover the largest share of those costs. The highest income, twenty percent of Americans, um, they that their their share of the total net cost of the federal system has been increasing over time. I think it's increased sort of over two hundred percent since the nineteen um, eighties, um, and. And so, and so, to claim that our system is not progressive uh, is, I think, sort of, is certainly disingenuous. Um, and when you compare us to other countries around the world, uh, you'll find that our system is actually much more progressive than many of the countries uh, across Europe. What happens if we include all taxes, even at the state and local level? Does that change? The way that it's distributed, it so when you include state level taxes, the the the, tr- the story I just told doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Um, the top income groups still pay more taxes than their than the share of all the income that they earn, uh, but it does become a little bit less um, progressive it, because states tend to rely more. On sales taxes, which tend to be more evenly distributed across the sort of income scales and less lopsided on uh, on the wealthy, so still a highly progressive system. But the federal system is significantly more progressive than than the state systems are. What happens when you look after you take into consideration the benefits that are paid through? the tax code, like the child tax credit or some sort of tax credit? So the, when you, so when I was quoting sort of those income tax statistics uh, Mm -hmm. a a minute ago, that does include the the earned income tax credit and the the child tax credit. But what sometimes uh, when you, sometimes people will comment on the progressivity of the income tax system or the tax system overall and leave those pieces out. There's some um, uh, some some of the economists on the left like to quote the statistic that the that the lowest income Americans pay a higher tax rate than the like than the, than the richest Americans, and those statistics um, often come from not factoring in the EITC and the child tax credit, and then making some other adjustments on the top end that that skew the the conversation. And so I think it, it is really important to remember that. Um, that the tax code has the, these sort of built-in um, uh, features that keep tax taxes low, pretty low for the lowest income Americans. I mean, I would not have known to take that into consideration. And I mean, I guess it makes sense because if you're trying to argue that we still need to make it more progressive, then you want to make it look like it's less progressive. So it makes sense but it's still it's stuff like that just shocks me sometimes because i don't know if that's your job why are you not taking into consideration the things that 
because the the and I think this is um, this is something that's true uh, across disciplines. Is that all all mm-hmm. issues of public policy are so incredibly complicated that you're always making decisions about what to include and what not to include in whatever data you're you're looking at, and those those decisions that are going on behind the scenes often drive the, the outcomes. And that's why it's so easy, I think, for uh, for smart people on the right and the left to come to very different, um, very different conclusions or very different um, policy outcomes. It's, and it's almost always driven by some sort of normative, internal, um, personal preference as to what the world should look like that then drives some of the the decisions of which data to present and how to present it. Um, and everyone, everyone does it, does it all data has, has to be interpreted at, at some level. And so it's just always important to, to go back and sort of ask yourself, how is this constructed? Um, am I believing it just because it's confirming my priors uh, and, and sort of what other pieces of information are out there that might tell a different story? Another good lesson. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned before that countries, especially in Europe, pay for their large spending using mostly regressive taxes, which kind of makes the United States an oddity. So can you explain how that works? Because from what I hear people saying and from what a lot of my friends say all the time, it's like we need the tax system we have. We need to increase how progressive our tax system is because otherwise we won't be able to pay for it. But in Europe, they're doing just the opposite. I don't know. Can you talk on that a little bit? Yeah. So you're exactly right that the sort of the average European tax system is, uh, is much less progressive than the, the U S system. And that, happens in a couple of different ways. Um, they, they'll have, um, often they'll have income tax rates that are significantly higher than ours that are, uh, instead of 40%, they'll be 50, 60, or 70% income tax rates. But instead of, in the U.S., the top rate of 37% um, applying to uh, people that earn half a million dollars a year and above, um, that 50, 60% tax rate will apply to people who are making $50,000 a year and up often in, in some countries uh, in Europe. And so they have high, their highest tax rates apply to a larger, much larger segment of their population. Um, they also have significantly higher payroll taxes than we do, which are those taxes that, that sort of tax all income, including the first dollar and don't have those early exemptions. And then on top of that, they have what's called a value-added tax, which is essentially a sales tax that's collected in a, in a different way. Uh, and, and sales taxes hit the majority of spending that people do, and they and those are certainly not considered progressive. They tend to, uh, because most people's spending is on food and housing and other essentials, they, the, the taxes tend to hit lower-income people, middle-class people, and higher-income people similarly. And, and so, and, and, and that, that's how Europe funds their, their large welfare states. They fund their large welfare states through high taxes on everyone. 
um, not just high income taxes, not just high taxes on on the wealthy. Um, and so, and, and you can see this in in sort of comparative data across between the U.S. and uh, and the EU. If you look at a worker that earns about forty thousand dollars a year, um, which is about sixty six percent of of the average um, income. Um, and you sort of normalize that across the EU and the U.S. Um, someone earning forty thousand dollars in the U.S. will pay about um, uh, twelve thousand dollars in in taxes. Uh, that same person living in Europe will pay a little less than eighteen thousand dollars in taxes. Uh, and so the taxes take a significantly larger share of everyone's money. Um, in Europe, and that's the cost that 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 they endure to to fund their significantly larger governments. A few episodes ago, I talked to Brian Riedel about federal spending, and again, as I am any time that anyone mentions anything about the federal budget, I just was so stunned at the scale of our spending, and as a result the problems we have with the debt. Do you think that people realize that the more money, the more that the federal government increases spending, the more that lower income people will have to pay in taxes and that there's no way around it because there isn't even enough money at the top to pay for all of that spending? I mean, that, that's the reality that we're, we're hurtling towards uh, right now. There's this, Especially as we layer on all any of the new spending priorities that um, are being championed by by folks on the left, the only the only real way to pay for those promises is through broad based taxes on on most Americans. Um, I, a colleague of mine, David Burton, sort of did the back of the envelope calculation, and he found that if the federal government were to take all corporate income and all personal income over $200,000 a year, have a 100% tax rate um, on, on corporations and people and, and income earned over $200,000 a year, assuming that those people keep working and the businesses continue to, to make a profit for the government to take all of, you could still only raise about $35 trillion over 10 years. Uh, the the whole host of progressive promises, Medicare for all, uh, free college, uh, Green New Deal, costs about over $90 trillion over 10 years. So there's just like, it's mathematically impossible to pay for the, the sort of progressive agenda with just taxes on the rich. Ultimately, it has to end up, we have to end up with taxes on um, on middle class Americans, certainly, but poor Americans have to shoulder some of that cost as well. Otherwise, there's no way to make the math work. And that's with the assumption that taxing at 100% won't change the incentives to produce things. <laughs> absolutely ridiculous assumption that it won't change the incentives. That, yeah, the, as soon as we, we know that when you raise um, taxes on people, they, they change their behavior. When you tax something more, you get less of it. Um, and when you tax tax work um, at high rates, you get people work less. Um, and it's and less work means 
less economic activity, less innovation, less entrepreneurship, um, less, less progress, less of all the things that make us make our lives better, um, uh, less of the innovation that leads to things like vaccines to cure problems that we've never had to encounter, like the coronavirus. You, you could go on and on. Uh, and that, uh, I think, is that's the re- that's the real fear is that is that these sort of punitive regimes that will be necessary to pay for all of this all the spending we're doing now let alone all the spending that's being promised uh, it will have sort of long run um, dramatic negative impacts on um, on sort of on people's oper- economic opportunity and well-being what do you think we can do about it? Are we too far gone or is there still hope or are any of the possible solutions even going to be accepted or even entertained by politicians or just anyone who has any sort of power to do anything about it? I mean, I, I'm, I, I know our conversation has been pretty has, has maybe sounded pessimistic but it's it's not too late and we can get our hands around these issues people just have to start caring about it and conversations like this the the work that Brian is doing uh, many others is is critically important to getting getting the average person to to care that congress just spent 6 trillion additional dollars on on the coronavirus crisis uh in the last year um, and, and that most of that money isn't well targeted or isn't actually going to people in need, but it's instead being spent on any number of things that have very little or nothing to do with the coronavirus. Uh, I think that argument can be made well and is compelling to a lot of people. Um, and it, and a lot of people have cared about it in the past. So I think at some point, these arguments will resonate with folks. And once people start caring, then their representatives in Washington will start caring. Uh, And that's when we'll be able to get some change. But right now we just have to talk about it, get the word out, um, get people to to care. um, And uh, you're doing your part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. That's good. That's some optimism. We're ending on a, on a pretty good note, I guess, I think. I mean, a good note about something that's kind of scary, kind of frustrating. Um, I don't know. <laughs> but well, I, I th- just uh, one quick point on mm-hmm. on this is that the the real problem of sort of, of the runaway deficits and debt, uh, I think is more manageable if we think about it at, at, in growth rates. So we know that tax revenue sort of automatically grows over time for any for various reasons. Um, there's sort of automatic uh, things built into the tax code that mean that we get a little more revenue each year. Um, but spending also increase is also increasing, um, and it's increasing faster than revenue, and it's increasing faster than um, than economic growth. And it's and that's the problem. Really, what we need to do is reduce the growth rate in spending. And if we could just reduce the growth rate of, of government spending to one or two percent, so not even stopping the growth or even cutting anything, just stopping the, the growth rate year over year, you could get to a balanced budget pretty pretty quickly. 
Um, I don't have updated numbers off the top of my head, but it used to be if you could get to a, a growth rate of one and a half or two percent, you could back, get to a balanced budget within 10 years. And so while the decisions are difficult in how we in how you actually reduce that growth rate, because the growth is driven by Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, some of the thorniest issues in American politics, the when you the the, the math of it is 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 not that difficult. And so as soon as politicians sort of get the guts to be able to talk about some of the, these, these issues that are driving the growth rate, um, the, the answers aren't, aren't, aren't necessarily out of this world uh, inconceivable. Uh, it's very doable to put us on a, on a sane fiscal path. Uh, we just have to have the sort of political will to get there. That, that's hopeful. And here, listeners, action item. Share this podcast. Shout out to myself and to Adam. Um, but also just talk about this sort of stuff because people, I feel like I didn't understand this. I know a lot of people who don't understand this. And so talking about it is not only a way to get people to care, but it's a way to get people to understand it and see the solutions that are possible if only we all understood it. So you know, just talk about it or share this or share something, you know. Um, so to wrap up, what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? This is a, a, a great question. Um, and I guess I'll keep it in the in the sort of same conversation we've been having in the accident and spending space. Uh, I, I used to think that something called stock starve the beast worked. So this is the theory that uh, if you cut taxes, um, you're going to therefore constrain the growth of, of government. So you don't need to uh, cut tax. You don't need to cut spending. All we need to do is just cut taxes. And then because deficits can't grow forever, um, spending has to, has to come down uh, eventually. And I think we just empirically see that this doesn't work. Um, mm. That what I mean after this most recent the, the, in 2017 there was a big tax cut Congress current, turned around and increased spending uh, uh, multiple times um, similar things happened in um, in, in 2002 and 2003 um, around the Bush uh, tax cuts uh, and and I mean just you could see our deficit continues to grow. Even though we've had some some pretty significant tax cuts and other other tax reforms, uh, and so ultimately, I think tax cuts without offsetting spending reforms just make government look cheaper to people. So they're not paying for the government they're getting, which um, in turn makes them demand bar- uh, larger amounts of government, um, and and so. I think it's really important to talk about spending and taxes as two sides of the same coin. Anytime we try to dis, uh, disconnect the two, um, we get sort of out of whack fiscal policy. And um, I think we're seeing some of that today. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I never really thought too hard about, oh, well, what's the best way to do this? Because I'm still kind of trying to grasp what this is and what is going on. Um, but you do bring up good examples and good times where it 
this sort of strategy, if it works, should have worked, but it didn't. I feel like it does make sense. And it is, it does have really bad implications, especially right now. But thank you so much. You have given a lot of very good lessons and you've, I don't know, informed me and informed the listeners. So thank you so much for your insight. And thank you to my listeners for listening, subscribing, and sharing my podcast. If you want to be on the podcast or if you have a guest in mind, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at thecgo.org. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me on. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Bye.